0: It's the Americhicks with Kim Monson.
1: Now, while this is all going on, I went through President Trump's speech and uh, Chuck and Nancy's rebuttal.
0: The most important story.
1: The American people finally said enough, and that is why they elected Donald Trump.
2: The latest in politics and world affairs.
1: Britain's version of Medicare for All is struggling with long waits for care.
2: And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead.
1: Because ideas matter. It's the Americhicks, dissecting
2: issues. As right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation.
1: Welcome to the Chicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation and I'm thrilled today to be having a conversation with Dr. Alan Gelzo. He is the Henry R. Luz Professor of Civil War era and the director of the Civil War Era Studies uh, at Gettysburg College. And Doctor Gelzo, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Well, you're very welcome, Kim. It's Good to be with you.
1: July first. Uh, what a day. That is the day that the Battle of Gettysburg started. So let's set this up for our listeners. Pretending that people don't know much about Gettysburg, how would you start?
2: Well, let's start with Gettysburg itself. In 1863, when the battle takes place, the town of Gettysburg is a small regional center of trade, commerce, and law of about 2,500 people, according to the 1860 census its great advantage is its location because it sits at the nexus of as many as ten roads that radiate in from north, south, east, and west. It's particularly important for the north-south axis because anyone who crosses the Potomac and wants to head north into Pennsylvania, New York, and New England is really going to have to come through Gettysburg sooner or later. Uh, that is, that's simply a choke point. Then east to west, it's another choke point too, because Gettysburg is the first significant town that is east uh, of the foothills of the Appalachians, and anyone who is going to be moving on foot or in wagon or on horseback, moving from east to west, heading toward Pittsburgh or other other points west, is going again sooner or later to come through Gettysburg. So. In the context of the American Civil War, that means that if armies are going to be maneuvering in that region, then they are going to be coming through Gettysburg, too. From the very beginning of the war, people in Gettysburg were fearful and expected that they were going to get a visitation from either the Union or the Confederate armies, or both. Mm -hmm. It took two years for that to happen, but it did happen because Gettysburg was simply an unavoidable place, geographically speaking the real situation in 1863 however was one in which the confederate army had the initiative in the summer of 1863 the civil war had been going on for two years and it was two years in which the results were by no means clear the breakaway confederate army had established itself with a number of important victories but nothing that quite made sure that its independence and its bid for independence uh, was going to be in any way successful the commander of the confederate army in the east the army of northern virginia was robert e lee robert e lee had a good strategic grasp of the situation he understood that the southern confederacy did not have the industrial or economic stamina to enter into a long war for independence against the authority of the united states in this case the northern states so he understood that what he had to do was to move onto northern soil score a victory there and so discourage northern public opinion that northern public opinion would compel the administration of President Abraham Lincoln, to come to the peace table and begin peace negotiations that would result in Confederate independence. He understood that the Confederacy was going to have to do this in this fashion because it couldn't go, let's say, a 15-round bout Mm -hmm. with the North. It was going to have to score a knockout early in in the contest. And the best way to do that would be either A, to invade Pennsylvania and spend the summer looting Pennsylvania and thus show how impotent the Lincoln administration was, or else, even better, to meet the Federal Army, the Army of the Potomac, in open battle and defeat it, as, in fact, Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia had done on several occasions prior. So in the summer of 1863, it really looked like this was the strategy that would most likely win the war for the Confederacy. So at the beginning of June, Robert E. Lee begins to pull his army away from its usual positions in Virginia and swings them in a long march down the Shenandoah Valley, crossing the Potomac, into Maryland, and then into Pennsylvania, coming up to Chambersburg, and then peeling to the right, heading inevitably toward Gettysburg. What Lee hoped to do was to move so quickly that the army of the Potomac, the Union army, would get strung out on the roads, chasing him. And as it got strung out on the roads, it would become vulnerable by pieces. Lee would then turn and gobble up one or more of those pieces as they came up in pursuit of him. And, piece by piece, destroy the Union army. If he could do that, that would so depress northern public opinion that the calls for peace talks would go up at once. And he had good reason for thinking that, too, because in the fall, 1862, midterm elections, the Lincoln administration had taken quite a pounding, had lost 34 seats in the House of Representatives, Even more important, it lost two key governorships, the governorships of New York and New Jersey. They passed into the hands of Democrats who were opposed to the Lincoln administration and were friendly to the idea of negotiations with the Confederacy. Well, in 1863, the fall elections for that year had the governorships of Pennsylvania and Ohio up for grabs. If Robert E. Lee could score some kind of significant victory, in Pennsylvania, that might push those gubernatorial elections into the hands of Democrats in Pennsylvania and Ohio, and taken together, those four states, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, would form a block so formidable that together those governors could present an ultimatum to Abraham Lincoln, end the war.
1: Well, so Dr. Alan Gelzo, it sounds to me like Robert E. Lee, I've always heard that he was very, I think, respected by Lincoln, right? And it sounds like not only what he was a a, a good general, but he also kind of understood the political landscape.
2: Yes, he did. He had a very clear strategic sense that took in not only what was militarily possible, but also what was politically important. And in a letter that he wrote to the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, just before embarking on this expedition across the Potomac, he laid out very carefully what he hoped would be the political ramifications of his invasion of Pennsylvania. So Lee is playing not only the military aspect of things, but he's playing the politics of it as well, because Northern war weariness could be the ultimate factor that would tip the matters into the favor of the Confederacy.
1: Okay, so thank you for setting that up. So now what happens?
2: Lee expects, as he has moved into Pennsylvania, that the Northern Army is going to rush to catch up with him. And so he concentrates his army, the Army of Northern Virginia, at Gettysburg. He believes, he understands, that the Union Army is in poor shape so he believes he can concentrate his army at Gettysburg ahead of any appearance of the Union Army, and therefore be in full strength and able to deal with the Union Army as it moves into the Gettysburg area. He was wrong by about 24 hours, wow. because the Union Army itself, although it was undergoing some real problems, was moving a lot faster than Lee had planned. When I say real problems, what I mean is the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, had undergone a series of humiliating defeats. There had been a tremendous, catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December of 1862. And after that, the general commanding, Ambrose Burnside, was removed. Then it suffered yet another defeat at the Battle of Chancellorsville in May of 1863. And the general who had been put in the place of Burnside, Joseph Hooker, he was then removed. The Army of the Potomac, in fact, at this point in June and July of 1863, is operating on its fourth commanding officer in approximately the span of one year. And its new general, commanding general, George G. Meade, is a man who is very, very reluctant to undertake this responsibility because he understands first of all that his army is not in the best of shape and secondly he also understands that the political pressure from the lincoln administration is really desperate and they're expecting a great deal from him he's not sure that that can be delivered nevertheless the union army does get moving in pursuit of lee and the lead elements of the army of the potomac three infantry corps by the way the army of the potomac is composed of seven infantry corps three infantry corps under the general oversight of major general john reynolds move up cross the pennsylvania line and get within striking distance of gettysburg by the evening of june thirtieth eighteen sixty three reynolds has his cavalry his screen so to speak his mobile screen out in front and they make contact with robert e lee's confederates so Reynolds has something of an advantage. He knows more about what Lee is doing and where Lee's soldiers are than Lee knows about Reynolds. And Reynolds' plan basically moves in this direction. He wants his cavalry, in this case commanded by Major General John Buford, to stage a delaying action west of Gettysburg. Reynolds wants to bring up his three infantry corps from where they are, about seven miles to ten miles below Gettysburg. He wants to bring them up on the morning of July 1st, get them to the west of the town of Gettysburg so that he can hold the town and the crucial uh, heights just south of the town known as Cemetery Hill, and having held those, give a chance for General Meade, his superior, to bring the rest of the army of the Potomac up to that place as well. And that, in fact, is the plan that Reynolds executes. On the morning of July 1st, the Confederate Army begins marching in its uh, happy, contented, and unsuspecting way uh, on the road uh, eastward into Gettysburg, only to collide early in the morning with cavalry outposts of the Union Army. They hadn't been planning on this. They begin to deploy to deal with these cavalrymen. And the cavalrymen, after having forced them to waste time deploying, jump up on their horses, gallop off further down the road, and repeat the process. And at each point, the Confederates, as they advance, have to deploy into line of battle. It takes time. It takes energy. And all the while, General Buford is waiting, praying, and hoping that Reynolds is going to get those three infantry corps up to Gettysburg to bail his cavalrymen out.
1: Hey, Dr. Gelso, They're back. Let, let's They're stop right there. all th-
2: the way to Gettysburg. You, 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 oh, you want to stop there? Yeah, oh, that's let's, fine. yeah,
1: let's stop right there and go to break. Uh, when we come okay. back, then let's continue on. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks, and we are talking with Dr. Alan Gelzo uh, regarding the Battle of Gettysburg, and he is an expert. He is the professor of Civil War era and the director of the Civil War era studies at Gettysburg College. We're going to go to break. We'll be right back. It's baseball season, and Hooters is the spot to be this summer. Enjoy Hooters' beach-worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help you cool down this summer. Love their nine items for 9 bucks, 11 to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items, such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and, of course, their boneless wings. So you can dine in or you can get food to go delivered to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks.
2: All AmeriChicks sponsors are an exclusive partnership with the AmeriChicks and are not affiliated or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson and grow your business, contact Kim at AmeriChicks.com. That's AmeriChicks.com.
3: Don't miss Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Join Kim Munson with the Americhicks at Waters Edge Winery in Centennial or Colorado Cork and Keg in Castle Rock. And now introducing Vino and Veritas in Fort Collins at Ginger and Baker. Kim Munson with the Americhicks would like to thank Otto Fireguard for sponsoring this fascinating exploration of the U.S. Constitution. And sponsoring the new Vino and Veritas in Fort Collins, Kim Munson looks forward to celebrating U.S. Constitution Week in Grand Lake. Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Sign up today at Americhicks.com.
0: You'd like to get in touch with one of Kim Monson's sponsors, but you can't recall their phone number. Find a full list of advertising partners on Americhicks.com.
1: Welcome back to the Ameritics with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. It is July 1st, and uh, it is the day that the Battle of Gettysburg started. Thrilled to have on the line with me Dr. Alan Gelzo. He is the Henry Arluz Professor of Civil War era and Director of Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College. He has a book, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. Uh, Dr. Gelzo this is absolutely fascinating. In the last segment, we had left everybody hanging where, um, let's see, it is uh, Buford that, uh, and his cavalry with the Union Army are engaging the Confederates, and then they're moving back. Uh, and he's hoping that Reynolds is going to show up with the infantry. So take it from there.
2: Reynolds is a mystery, as far as Buford is concerned, because he's had no word from him. Buford and his cavalry fall back, fall back. They fall back almost to the outskirts of the town of Gettysburg itself, at which point Buford is just about ready to abandon the fight, when, from his command post in the cupola of the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Gettysburg, he looks southwards and there At almost the last moment, there comes Reynolds, his headquarters staff, and behind him, the infantry of the three infantry corps that Reynolds is commanding. Reynolds gets his men into position. As the Confederates push forward towards Gettysburg, thinking that they're just shoving cavalry out of the way, they bang, run into Reynolds' Union infantry. And do they ever get a bloody nose for their efforts? The Confederates recoil, they fall back, and they try to figure out, what do we do next? We weren't expecting this. Well, they do have some advantages. One is that Reynolds only has three infantry corps at his disposal, and the Confederates have approximately three times that number coming up the road. Moreover, Reynolds is killed at the outset of the fighting by a Confederate skirmisher, so there's a certain amount of confusion about who's in charge. Finally, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Robert E. Lee shows up, and Lee takes charge of matters, and when he does, things really start to click. Lee orchestrates a collected advance of as many of the soldiers of the Army of Northern Virginia as he has managed to get to Gettysburg by that time, and they overrun the federal infantry that's trying to protect the town of Gettysburg. They overrun it so successfully that all of the Union defenses collapse. By about 4 o'clock on the afternoon of July 1st, the Union infantry is streaming in defeat through the streets of Gettysburg and finally collects itself on the height just below the town of Gettysburg called Cemetery Hill. They might, in fact, have kept on going had it not been for the, one of the officers commanding under Reynolds, and that was General Oliver Otis Howard. General Howard rallies the disheartened federal troops, lays out positions on Cemetery Hill, and is determined to hold this, if at all possible, until reinforcements from the rest of the federal army can come up. By that point, he's alerted the rest of the federal army, the Army of the Potomac, and in fact, by six o'clock, fresh Union soldiers are arriving in the Gettysburg area. At this point, people have wondered, why didn't Robert E. Lee simply press forward, push Howard and the rest of the Union Army off that hill, and claim a total victory on July 1st? The basic answer is that Lee's troops had been marching all day, fighting all day. They were exhausted. They were disorganized by the pursuit through the town, and Lee could simply say to himself, well, Tomorrow morning will be another day, and I will finish the battle tomorrow morning. He did not suspect how close the other elements of the Army of the Potomac were to Gettysburg. So when night falls on the field at Gettysburg, you have the Army of the Potomac hanging on by its fingernails to Cemetery Hill, and Robert E. Lee assuming that tomorrow morning he's going to finish the work that had been started on July 1st. That is, in fact, how he begins the action on July 1st. On July 1st, he takes one of his biggest infantry corps. Now, is that July
1: 1st or July 2nd?
2: I'm sorry, July 2nd.
1: Okay.
2: On the morning of July 2nd, he takes one of his biggest infantry corps under one of his favorite subordinates, James Longstreet, and sends them looping in a long flank march, which is intended to come up in the rear of Cemetery Hill and thus break into Cemetery Hill, scatter the Union defenders, and finish a victory. What neither Lee nor Longstreet had realized was that all through the night of July 1st to July 2nd, the rest of the Army of the Potomac had been coming up on the roads from Maryland and had taken up positions behind Cemetery Hill in a long line that stretched down to another hill, another strategic hill known as Little Round Top. When Longstreet, on July 2nd, tried to execute his march around Cemetery Hill to come in behind it, instead he bumped into fresh Union troops who had come in in the night. In this case, the 3rd Corps of the Army of the Potomac, the 2nd Corps of the Army of the Potomac, and the 5th Corps of the Army of the Potomac. Even so, what happens then is a battle that no one seems to be in control of all through the late afternoon of July 2nd and into the early evening and until uh, really until darkness falls. There is a constant seesawing back and forth. It's one of the bloodiest days of the Civil War. And it's a day in which it seems no one has any control. None of the generals seem to have any control of what's going on. The fighting really devolves into the hands of the individual unit commanders. And what's amazing about the fighting on July 2nd at Gettysburg is how often individual unit commanders in the Union Army without any direction from above, acting purely on instinct, make the right decisions over and over and over again. The classic example happens on Little Round Top. One Union regiment, the 20th Maine, runs out of ammunition. The Confederates are attacking. Their colonel, their commander, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Joshua Chamberlain, was not a military man by profession, he was a professor of rhetoric from Bowdoin College of all things in the world. (laughs) But he made the right decision because he told his men, fix bayonets and charge, we'll take them by surprise. It worked. And the Alabama regiments that were attacking uh, Little Round Top were thrown back in confusion. Chamberlain's is the most famous story that comes out of these actions on July 2nd. But in fact, Chamberlain's not the only one. There's a series of these, and the same pattern repeats itself. Colonel Colville of the 1st Minnesota charges an entire Confederate brigade, and the Confederates are so surprised at the audacity of these Minnesotans. It's the 1st Minnesota Regiment. They're so taken aback by this that they stop cold in their tracks. Another brigade sprints over across Cemetery Hill, just in time, to repel the attack of a large Confederate grouping of Louisiana and North Carolinian troops. So that all through July 2nd, everything hangs in the balance, and it's individual decisions that are made. At the end of the day, the Union Army has hung on to its positions at Gettysburg, once again by its fingertips. They have taken terrible losses. Of the seven infantry corps in the Army of the Potomac, four of them are complete wrecks. One of them is needed for reserve. One of them has to hold one of the hills, and all that is left are two divisions to hold the back door of Cemetery Hill. Now, that being the case, even though Robert E. Lee thought that on July 2nd he was going to finish and win the battle, he has accomplished enough that he's convinced that the next day, July 3rd, one more good, heavy shove ought to do the job. As far as he was concerned, the Union Army was on the ropes, and all he had to do was wade in and land the one last big punch that would sprawl them out on the canvas. And then he could declare victory at Gettysburg.
1: Okay, at this point, Dr. Gelzo, uh, I'm a new person, I would say, to learning about all these different battles. There is a, a retired uh, army general that has started a business called Battle Digest, where he's doing a 3,000 word synopsis of some of the major battles throughout history. And one of the things that I'm learning is how important logistics is. So at this point, could you comment regarding logistics as supplies for each of the armies?
2: Logistics for Robert E. Lee and the Confederate Army were a really serious problem because the nearest supply base that Lee had for his army was way back in Stanton, Virginia. So he had a very long and vulnerable supply line. He had to hope that he was going to win this victory and win it fairly quickly, or else he was going to exhaust his supplies of ammunition. He was going to exhaust any possibility of reinforcements, and he was going to be in a, in real trouble in terms of the supplies that would feed and clothe his soldiers. The Union Army was not actually in a position all that much better. Gettysburg had a single rail line that linked it all the way back into Maryland, to Westminster, Maryland, and from there to Baltimore. But that single rail line had been wrecked. And that meant that the Union Army had as its nearest uh, logistical base, Westminster, Maryland, some 25 miles to the southeast. That meant that the Union Army was closer to supplies, but still it was going to be difficult to keep the Union Army fully equipped and fully up to snuff, even over a distance of 25 miles. And believe me, in... 1863, the distance of 25 miles Mm -hmm. was nothing to sniff at. We think 25 miles is like a drive to the supermarket. In the 19th century, 25 miles was like the distance that we cover here between Philadelphia and San Francisco. So that was a significant logistical problem for the Union Army as well. Both of these armies were going to have trouble supplying themselves with ammunition, with food, and with other vital equipment.
1: Wow. Okay, we're going to go to break in just a minute, but can you comment on the weather? What was the weather like uh, from July 1 to July 3, 3 in 1863?
2: The weather all through the month of June 1863, while the armies are maneuvering, is bad, tending toward worse. It rains almost every day in the month of June. The first day of the battle, July 1st, was only a slight improvement, because at least it stopped raining. There had been some incidental rain and misting in the early morning hours. But the day on July 1st is really overcast. Often we think of this as being a battle fought under clear blue skies. It's not. Uh, July 1st is, is really fought under very cloudy circumstances. And that means when dusk comes on, it's going to come on earlier for the participants and curtail fighting earlier. And the temperatures are more or less in their 80s, which is tolerable given circumstances. But still, it makes for pretty warm, close, humid kind of conditions. July 2nd is a little different. July 2nd starts out very foggy in the morning, but the sun soon dissipates the fog, and for most of the day, what you get is a marvelously clear day, something very rare in this summer of 1863, but there's another factor that enters in here in, in, in the form of man-made weather. The weapons that these soldiers use are single-shot, muzzle-loading, black powder weapons. They kick out enormous amounts of smoke, and... In a battle, unless there's a good stiff breeze to blow that smoke away, once an engagement has begun and continued for some time, then these banks of smoke become like London fog themselves. And they almost, by soldier accounts uh, from 1863, they, they almost blot out the sun. Uh, they're so thick that officers have to get down on all fours to look under the smoke banks to see where the enemy, to see where the target might be. So there's a certain amount of man-made weather that is created this way that gets in the way of operations on the battlefield.
1: Wow. Okay. We're going to go to break. This is Kim Munson with the Americhicks. I'm talking with Dr. Alan Gelzo regarding the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, We'll be right back. Hey, Jason McBride, what is on your mind today?
0: Well, Kim, since you have an expert on Gettysburg on the show, uh, I'll avoid delving into any details that might steal his thunder or more likely be completely incorrect. And I thought, how about we discuss a couple of really good quotes from Abraham Lincoln, uh, since he was uh, the author of the Gettysburg Address. I guess that ties in at least a little bit, right?
1: Absolutely. So what's your first quote?
0: You well, know, one of my favorites that makes a lot of sense is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt
1: <laughs> and you and I are on the air every morning speaking all the time, but that is a great quote
0: Well, it is, and we 're kind of required uh, to talk, but i can 't help but to think. You know, whenever there's kind of a group together discussing a subject, and you know who I'm talking about, Kim, there's always that, that one person or maybe two people that just feel the need to get their two cents in, even if it makes no uh, contribution, and just kind of want to hear themselves talk.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, not,
0: I, I'm being kind of mean. Huh? Yeah,
1: well, I, you know what? I think it's nothing new. Here, Abraham Lincoln was saying this back in the mid-1800s. Uh, so. Well,
0: and you know, my wife sometimes says that I don't communicate enough or I'm too quiet and don't talk. I'm going to tell her Abe Lincoln told me to Let's see how that flies.
1: And that means you're very wise. So, hey, what okay. what's your other favorite uh, Lincoln quote?
0: Well, I think one, too, that, that bears some real consideration is uh, he said, whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally.
1: You know, that is it. You know, whenever somebody is uh, advocating for something, it's that question, do you have any skin in the game? And uh, Lincoln, I, th- I think, said that back there in the mid-1800s. Great quotes.
0: Well, he almost lost all of his skin fighting that game, and and again, in today's climate where there's an awful lot of finger-pointing, I think it bears remembering uh, which party it was that championed uh, the uh, abolition of slavery.
1: And that was the Republicans.
0: That's correct.
1: Okay. Hey, Jason McBride, thank you so much. Uh, You have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
0: Have a great show, Kim.
1: Thanks. Social media is important to the AmeriChicks since it's an
3: avenue we can utilize to hear from and speak to all of our friends. For those of you who enjoy listening to the show, we'd love to hear what's on your radar. Follow us and talk to us at AmeriChicks Twitter and Facebook pages. Also, if you're a business owner who could benefit from some extra foot traffic from like-minded friends, consider advertising on the AmeriChicks radio show. Contact us at AmeriChicks.com or email Kim at AmeriChicks.com
2: difference if i hail from north or south or from the east or west
1: welcome back to the americhicks with kim munson where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left agree or disagree let's have a conversation be sure and check out my website americhicks.com i have on the line with me dr alan gelzo who is an expert on the battle of gettysburg and speaking of websites what is yours dr gelzo
2: My website is www.allengelzo, all is one word, A-L-L-E-N-G-U-E-L-Z-O dot com.
1: And you have written a number of books regarding uh, the Civil War, yes?
2: Yes, I plead guilty to having done so.
1: (laughs) And uh, so all of those are, are, I assume, they are listed there, aren't they? Yes, they are. Okay, fantastic. So, again, I want you to get that. That is Alan Gelzo, A L L E N G U E L Z O dot com. A L L E N G U E L Z O dot com. So, okay, Dr. Gelzo, let's go ahead and jump in here. July 3rd, uh, of the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863. What's going on?
2: July 3rd is the day that Robert E. Lee thought he was going to win the Battle of Gettysburg. The previous two days his opposing numbers in the Army of the Potomac had taken quite a shellacking and he by contrast actually had an entire fresh uncommitted division of Confederate troops under George E. Pickett ready to commit to a final collision of arms what Lee decided to do was more or less a repeat of his tactics on July 2nd he would go for the nape of the Union neck. In other words, right behind Cemetery Hill. If you think of Cemetery Hill as being the head of the Union Army's positions, he's going to go for the nape of the neck, right behind Cemetery Hill, and he's going to try to slice the Union Army in two, kick open the back door to Cemetery Hill, and fling the Union Army from its positions in disarray and rout. To do that, he is going to launch a complete frontal assault by this fresh division of three brigades under George Pickett. He's going to support it with a massive artillery bombardment, and he's going to support it with other elements and other units that he has pulled together from other parts of his army. The actual action does not begin until just after noon, And that is when the preliminary bombardment begins. And what a bombardment. Some 170 Confederate cannon are aimed at Cemetery Hill and right behind Cemetery Hill. And they let loose what really has to be said was the biggest noise that had been heard on the North American continent since the creation. It was so loud. There was so much noise that people far away in Lancaster, Pennsylvania could hear the detonations of the cannon. In Philadelphia, people could put their hands on the streetcar rails and feel the vibration from the bombardment at Gettysburg. This lasts for about an hour, and the purpose is as much as possible to silence Union artillery. And to a large degree, they're successful. Many of the Union artillery batteries that have been in position defending Cemetery Hill and behind Cemetery Hill are forced to pull back. At that moment, out steps the long lines of Confederate infantry, some 14 to 15,000 of them. Holding on to the back door of Cemetery Hill are two divisions of the Second Corps of the Army of the Potomac. They amount to about, perhaps, 3,500 men, all told, with a few other bits and pieces of broken units, which had been badly handled in the first two days of fighting, but were nevertheless going to try to help out if they could. Could that contingent of federal soldiers hold that ground? That was the big question. The Confederates step out, and it's one of the great moments of the war in terms of pageantry. Up and down the Union position, soldiers would say, you could hear the muttering, here they come, here come the infantry. And the Confederates start forward in perfect alignment, line upon line, unit upon unit, their red flags snapping in the very, very slow breeze that prevailed that day. As they moved across the open ground towards Cemetery Hill, Union artillery began to open fire on them, tearing holes in their ranks. But they closed up, and they kept on coming and coming. They reached the Emmitsburg Road, or Sunken Road, which ran about a 100 yards in front of the Union position below Cemetery Hill. There, they clambered over two lines of fence rails, reformed, and in the last 100 yards, surged forward. In the lead were brigades from Virginia, under James Garnett, under um, Richard Garnett and James Kemper, and they work their way right up to the federal positions. There they stall, but coming up behind them is another Confederate brigade under Lewis Armistead that pushes right through the Union line and looks like it's going to burst straight through into the rear of the Union position and into the rear of Cemetery Hill. The only thing standing in their path is a single Union regiment from what was called the Philadelphia Brigade. This is the 72nd Pennsylvania. The 72nd Pennsylvania stands there unsure what to do as Armistead and his Virginians are surging toward them and the color bearer of 72nd Pennsylvania William Finnessy stands out in front of his men and says I'm moving forward will you let the color bearer of your regiment move forward alone and at that moment the 72nd picks itself up and rolls forward to attack these Virginians who are coming at them General Armistead is shocked falls down the confederates are stopped they fall back and almost in the time it takes to tell The Confederate attack loses momentum, falls apart, and the next thing that you know, the remains of Pickett's division are streaming backwards over the ground that they had covered. As they return to their original position in the woods opposite Cemetery Hill, they're met by Robert E. Lee, who cannot believe that his great gambit has failed. He rides among his men, saying, this is my fault. This has been all my fault. We must rally now like good men, but this has been my fault." That evening, realizing that he he's exhausted the supplies and the ammunition of his army, he calls one of his cavalry commanders, John Imboden, to his tent and instructs Imboden to begin orchestrating a retreat back to Virginia. That night, the rain comes down almost as a way of nature cleansing the battlefield of the carnage that had taken place there for three days. The next day is Saturday, the 4th of July.
1: Wow. It uh, takes my breath away. I, I've been to Gettysburg, Dr. Gelzo, and it was a very quick trip. I was um, um, moving one of my kids from New York back to uh, Colorado. And so it was a very short trip. Um, but standing there, it, it's sacred ground. It seems like I could feel what had happened at that battleground.
2: That is the same experience I had many, many years ago when I went to Gettysburg for the first time. This was in 1975, and I was a college senior. And I'd hitched a ride with a field trip from another class, and to walk on that ground and to stare around at it was to realize that you were really standing on the single most important square acreage of American soil. Because you have to think, What would have happened if it had gone otherwise? If those Confederates, in fact, had broken through, if they had kicked down that back door of Cemetery Hill, if they had forced the Army of the Potomac into retreat, what would have happened? Well, the possibilities, of course, are matters of speculation, but let me give you a scenario or two. The Army of the Potomac, having experienced yet another defeat, falls apart. Ceases to become a worthwhile military organization anymore. And only a few units hold together, staging a retreat to the Susquehanna River. Robert E. Lee is able to win control of central Pennsylvania, and the Confederate government presents Abraham Lincoln with an ultimatum for negotiations, which Lincoln cannot avoid, because he no longer really has an army to protect the Union with. If that's the case, The American Republic becomes sundered into two republics. One, an aggressive imperialistic slave republic, and the other, a comparatively small, weak, and irrelevant rump of a nation, the northern states. Who then, who then is going to be available some 50 years later to bail out the European nations, the allies, from German militarism in World War One, Who's going to be available to head off the, the, the midnight of Nazism in the 1930s and the 1940s? Who's going to be available to confront communism in the 1960s and the 1970s? Certainly not what would have resulted if Lee had won at Gettysburg. When you consider it, the possibilities make you sit down and want to weep And you realize how very, very, very close run the whole affair was. All of it concentrated, vectoring down right on that single few acres, right around that clump of trees that stood in the rear of Cemetery Hill that marked the the target that the Virginians were aiming at. It is a remarkable place where incredible things happened. And... A place where, you might say, the the future not only of the country, but the future of world history trembled in the balance.
1: Okay, just a quick comment then. Uh, it seems to me like I heard this, you alluded to it, and that was divine providence. We've heard divine providence, uh, examples of that in the Revolutionary War. What's your thoughts on divine prov- um, providence regarding the Battle of Gettysburg?
2: Well, I'm not one who wants to second guess the mind of God, or even to read what the mind of God is like. But in looking at what happened, I have to say that there was, there must have been, there could only have been, an intervention here that saved the United States and world history from calamities too terrible to want to describe and if there is such a thing as immediate providential intervention in human affairs there has to seem like that afternoon of July 3rd was one of them wow. and, I, and in American history it's hard to think of, of a better moment or a better identify that way
1: you know and I hadn't really thought about what you just described who would have been there to stand against tyranny, World War I, World War II. I, I, it's absolutely fascinating. Dr. Alan Gelzo, we have one more segment. We're going to go to break. When we come back, let's talk about your book, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. And be sure and check out uh, Dr. Gelzo's website. It is uh, www.allengelzo.com That's A L L E N G U E L Z O.com. We're going to go to break. When we come back, let's talk about your book. Hey, have you ever wanted to ride in a real World War II warplane? Oh my gosh, we have a very exciting giveaway for you. The Collings Foundation is bringing their Wings of Freedom World War II warbirds to the Northern Colorado Regional Airport July 12th, 13th, and 14th. You can visit a World War II camp complete with a tank, jeeps, and all kinds of things to go through. But here's the most exciting part. One lucky listener will get a ride on one of the World War II warbirds. If you're 18 years or older, go to my website, Americhicks.com, and sign up for the July 9th drawing. Are you feeling lucky? Again, go to the Americhicks.com and sign up. It will be quite an adventure.
3: Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect your private property rights. Karen Levine believes in home ownership. Since losing her mother to breast cancer, Karen Levine has helped to organize a local fundraising event called Karen's for the Cure, raising money for breast cancer research. Choose Karen Levine to buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Karen Levine comes highly recommended by the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. So call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516.
0: Come join the 88 Drive-In for all your favorite blockbuster movies. We're open seven days a week. Admission is only $9 per person, and children under 12 are free. Friday, June 28th through Thursday, July 4th, features will include Toy Story 4, Godzilla, and Aladdin. And remember our popular Monday through Thursday pizza special. Get one 12-inch pizza served fresh and hot from our oven and two tall, cool 16-ounce sodas, all for only 12 bucks. Plus, now you can top it all off with our new sweet, crunchy churros and a steaming cup of hot chocolate. For more information, go to our Facebook page or visit our website at
2: 88drivein.net. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie.
1: Mine eyes have seen the glory Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. And be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All these shows are posted there. This conversation with Dr. Alan Gelzo has been absolutely fascinating regarding the Battle of Gettysburg. But let's move over now to this book that you have written, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. Tell us about that, Dr. Gelzo.
2: I suppose writing a book about the Battle of Gettysburg is something which inevitably comes to anyone who lives and works in Gettysburg. I've been on the faculty of Gettysburg College since 2004, and when I came there, I don't know that I really had it in my mind that I was going to write a book about the Battle of Gettysburg. I had written a general history of the Civil War. I had written several books about Abraham Lincoln, uh, Abraham Lincoln Redeemer President, uh, then the book on the Lincoln Douglas debates, and also the book on Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. But Gettysburg grows on you, and the stories accumulate. And after I had uh, finished the work on the Lincoln Douglas debates book in 2008, it just seemed to me the obvious next thing to do was to turn my attention to the story of Gettysburg itself. And so I spent the really five years accumulating material, reading sources, tracking down manuscripts in various collections, and assembling the story of Gettysburg and writing it. And we published it with Alfred Knopf in 2013. It spent eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, which was really great. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And what I wanted to do, because there are so many books about the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, In fact, the year 1863 didn't even come to an end before the first book on the Battle of Gettysburg had been published. There were so many of these books, I had to think to myself, well, what am I going to say that's going to be different? What I wanted to do was to move the story of Gettysburg away from the way, the manner in which it was usually told, as though it was just the story of the generals maneuvering their armies like chess pieces on a very distant and and coldly logical chessboard, and start talking about the experience of the soldiers themselves from the bottom up. What was it like to wear their uniforms? What was it like to eat their food? What, was, what were the weather conditions like that they had to march through? Uh, what were the responses of the people, uh, the ordinary civilians of south-central Pennsylvania, as the armies were moving through them? Uh, all of these are factors which impinge on an individual soldier's view of things <clears throat> and their performance under battle. And then, specifically, I wanted to look at the technicalities of 19th-century combat. Uh, what was it like to be a soldier in a 19th century war? That's uh, very different from a soldier in a 20th century war, say, at the Battle of the Bulge or D-Day, and far, far different you know, still from being a soldier in modern warfare, uh, let's say, in the Middle East, in the Iraq War in in 2003 and 2006. I, I wanted to see what was unique about... The soldier experience of 1863. And it really did turn out to be a very different experience indeed. There are commonalities that are going to be true of soldiers and fighting men in all eras and in all places. But there were some remarkable and distinct differences from the soldiers of the American Civil War. <laughs> some of them were sometimes a little bit amusing. For instance, one detail, and this doesn't really appear in other Gettysburg books, because again, the emphasis of many other Gettysburg books is top down. One thing that I kept tripping across was how the armies smelled. Now, you might Interesting not think about that, as, right, as, as an important uh, factor. But when you consider that these armies. <laughs> These armies do not bathe or have bathing facilities very easily at hand. They're on the march. They're dusty. They're dirty. It was said, and I kept finding comments like this all the time, it was said that you could smell the Confederate Army before you would ever actually see it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, all right, there's a, there's a detail right there. And that you know, when we visit the Gettysburg battlefield today, of course, it, it's a very clean and almost antiseptic experience. But for people then, that's the thing that would hit them right away. That would hit their senses right away. Well, the smell. Mm-hmm. And the smell sometimes would be awful. Not only that, the smell of the discharge of weapons. This, this peculiar sulfurous smell that comes from using black powder muskets. Uh, what, about, what about the experience of civilians? One of the curiosities uh, about the Battle of Gettysburg is how much civilian uh, spectatorship took place. Um, There were Union signal stations as close to the battlefield of Gettysburg as what's called the Indian Lookout at Emmitsburg, Pennsylvania. Now, you can climb up to the Indian Lookout today. It's just above what is now Mount St. Mary's College. You can climb up to the Indian Lookout today. You will not see very much, but in 1863 it was much um, more uh, deforested. There was a Union signal station there, and with a good telescope you could actually see as far as the Gettysburg battlefield. On the 3rd of July, crowds of civilians traipsed up to the Indian Lookout wanting to watch the progress because they could see it, wanting to watch the progress of Pickett's charge. So you might say that the Gettysburg battle is taking place, and it actually has spectators now maybe not quite like we 'd expect in a football stadium, but still it 's going on almost as though this is being done uh, as as a spectator event i 'm
1: not, sure yeah, not sure that's yeah i 'm not sure that 's something that I would do <laughs> well no, and you wouldn 't think
2: at, at, at first blush that you to put yourself that close to harm. And, uh, and maybe they were unwise for doing so. But curiosity can conquer a lot of hesitations. That's, and that's, that's certainly true. good for these people.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it, it is stories like that, both soldier and civilian, that I was really intent on uncovering and putting together this sense of the immediate experience of what John Keegan called the face of battle. For the Battle of Gettysburg, so the people would understand what a unique experience this battle in 1863
1: had been. Wow, Dr. Alan Gelzo, that is fascinating. That book is Gettysburg: The Last Invasion, and uh, be sure and check out Dr. Gelzo's website. It's www. Allen, that's A-L-L-E-N-G-U-E-L-Z-O dot com. Uh, I am going to get that book ordered, and I can't wait to read it. Dr. Allen Gelzo, thank you so much for joining the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson.
2: You're very welcome, Kim, and it's been a fine time to talk about Gettysburg.
1: Okay, thank you so much. And our quote for today is the last line of the Gettysburg Address from Abraham Lincoln. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us So today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. This is Kim Munson signing off. God bless you, and God bless America.